Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 96 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We are so happy to be together today. As always. Yes. (laughs) We're going to jump right in. The first thing we have to say is a big thank you to longtime listener, Deb, who goes down in history now as the first to increase her Patreon sponsorship. Thank you so much, Deb. We really appreciate it. We really do. For those of you who listened to episode 95, we were able to purchase a third microphone, which we used with Matthew Goodman. And I feel like the quality quality was just fantastic. Yeah, so absolutely. um, Thank you so much for your sponsorship of us, Deb. And just to remind people, you can send money our way. We use it for equipment and things like that. So we appreciate it. And then we also wanted to just do a little follow up on our conversation about American Dirt by Janine Cummins. We did a pretty in-depth conversation on episode 95. And we wanted to talk a little bit about, I think, what we can do as readers when it comes to reading more diversely. Right. And just in reading things critically, in a way, and reading things in context as well, um, wanted to give a shout out to Brian, who blogs at still an unfinished person dot blog. You know, he was one who wrote in and said, thanks for sharing the quotes by Baldwin and Harry Beecher Stowe, because it really a lot of writers are writing about anger and injustice and racism and slavery. And it helps to look at a book in context sometimes, either within the literature or to the reaction of a book that is having a complicated moment in history. Right. And I think part of what we can do as readers is just, you know, read diversely. So we understand issues from all different angles, encourage libraries to bring in diverse books, purchase diverse books for your kids' school libraries. And really just if we increase the demand as readers, then publishers will, you know, they're businesses and they will hopefully respond appropriately right yeah Yeah. exactly because that is one of the um the follow-ups too to the american dirt issue is that uh, a group of writers did meet with the publisher to talk about increasing their representation both in the books they publish and in the employees they hire yeah which is one of the positives we talked about hopefully happening from this big kerfuffle in Mm -hmm. the book industry right yeah And speaking of kerfuffles, there's a new one. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, there is a new one. If you may have seen floating around social media, the Barnes and Noble slash Penguin Random House classics series, the diverse voices. No, not diverse voices. That's the hashtag that came up from the American Dirt controversy, I believe. But they they, they got to... They reimagined classic book covers. Right. So, featuring protagonists of color. Yeah. That's what they did. They, they, they used artificial intelligence, AI, to scan classics, to find classics that didn't explicitly mention race. And then they made covers with, say, Moby Dick with an African-American-looking... Ahab. Right. And when I first saw this, I I did think it was kind of a spoof. I thought it was like an onion-like spoof on things. Um, And then I realized it was a real thing. And my first thought was, huh, that's kind of interesting and kind of weird, but kind of cool at the same time. Because truly, you know, as somebody who didn't 
feel like she grew up mainstream. I inserted myself into books where I felt like I could insert myself, even though that person wasn't exactly like me. Mm -hmm. So it is kind of true. Like, you know, Alice in Wonderland. Alice could be African-American or sure latina you know right. but she's not historically in context we know who the story was written for mm-hmm. and then i know there was people who were a bit upset about frankenstein being portrayed the monster being portrayed on the cover as an african-american when frankenstein is actually the scientist not his creature right who doesn't even look human so i don't know you can go down a lot of different avenues on the discussion about this but the final outcome was they pulled the books, they pulled the idea and realized because of a lot of backlash that the better approach is probably to take classics that already exist and maybe reissue them. Right. Yeah, because there are a lot of, I don't want to say a lot, it makes it sound like they're out there and readily available. You do have to search for them. And that's, again, where a librarian can really help you if you want to seek out writings by people of color that are already out there they may no longer be in print but the library system may have a copy so reissuing classics by people of color is definitely an option right you know you think of Anne Petrie her street was recently reissued I believe Nella Larson's passing right yeah go back to Phyllis Wheatley and her poetry um, from colonial America and hopefully there are also going to be just more books that become future classics that are starting to get published as well yeah so it's two things like you know the american dirt and the controversy and the conversations that came up out of that is about here and now and going forward but then you also want to look into the past and see what's there and where we came from as much as possible and i know like some so i I believe like yale is doing this big push right now to re-catalog their holdings across all their libraries and museums to add metadata so that more writings and objects by people of color, by gays and lesbians will be findable. Because you can't find a lot of these things if they're not cataloged in ways that people can find today. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just like you, you have to have the right keywords if you're searching electronically to find right. what you're looking for. And if something wasn't listed as written by an African-American woman or by a queer person, you'll never find it unless you're talking with somebody who has direct knowledge of the holdings. Right. Which is kind of hard to do if you're searching online remotely. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the last thing I'd like to say about it is kudos to Penguin Random House for deciding it wasn't a good approach, you know, and, and pulling the project. I just don't understand why they don't do more consumer Um, inquiry about this you know I get emails from different publishers about certain book covers that they're you know look at these three options which one do you like the most and why don't they do why didn't they do something like that Mm -hmm. maybe they did yeah who knows Um, but you know I I read at least one piece of criticism by somebody uh, who was writing about it saying like I wouldn't mind having a copy of Moby Dick with the African-American guy on the cover because some of them were really cool Mm mm-hmm Yeah, I guess that's true. I don't know. I think it was just the notion that there are also a lot of books that are already published that, you know, just need more, you know, a refresher and more publicity behind them and get them back into readers' hands. Right. You know, I'm not sure there's a problem with people reading Moby Dick 
for example. I think plenty of people read Moby Dick. And so why not, you know, get plenty of people reading the street? But I also get that it's beautiful that they wanted to reissue a whole series of classics. Yeah. That is a great thing because a lot of people, you want the the set to match. Yeah. Anyway, you know, the publishing industry is learning, moving forward as we all are. Yeah. In our various communities and within our larger country, yeah. world, yeah. universe. Yeah. So what are you currently reading? Well, I'm currently reading two books, a nonfiction and a fiction. Um, I'm almost finished listening to The End of Your Life Book Club, which is written by Will Schwalbe. So I'm happy to finally be listening to it. And that's the story of Will's mother being diagnosed with cancer and kind of like the informal book club that they have together as he's going with her to treatments and, and whatnot. So it really is just such a fantastic tribute to his mom and the powerful woman she was and the great things she did in the world and for her family and for herself. Um, so I have, I think, just like an hour and a half left on that. I can't believe you're here. Thank you. <laughs> I loved that book. I did not listen to it. I read it, yeah, but I you, loved it. I mean, I do have to say I don't like the narrator's voice of women. Mm. They all sound a little too prissy and precious. Mm. I was going to ask you if he read it, no, so he doesn't no, read it. Okay. I didn't uh, write down the narrator's name. I, too, am reading two books and have a nonfiction and a fiction going. The nonfiction book I'm reading is called From Scratch, A Memoir of Love, Sicily, and Finding Home by Tembe Locke. This was recommended to us by Matthew Goodman. Actually, off mic, he was telling us about the contest that he was a judge for, and this was one of the books he really enjoyed, and he knows that I have a love of food and uh, memoir. So he thought I would like this. It's really good. It's quite sad. Tembe Locke, ironically, is Attica Locke's sister. That's not really ironic, except that they're both writers. Attica Locke is a mystery writer. And also, I think she writes the for the show Empire, I'm pretty mm, sure, on okay. television. And this is a story about when she was in college, she went to Italy to study abroad and ended up falling for a man there, an Italian man who is a chef, and he dies of cancer, which you know, you know, at the very beginning of the book. And apparently, she finds her way back to kind of the living after losing her husband through food. And I'm not deep enough into the book to really get that part. I know that obviously food was important in their family because he was a chef. And they also have a seven-year-old child. So it's very much about family. His Italian family didn't accept her as his wife, you know, as him marrying an American and moving to the United States. They were not thrilled about that. Um, so again, From Scratch, A Memoir of Love, Sicily, and Finding Home by Tembi Locke. All right. Well, the novel that I'm reading, I just started it last night. It's The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires by Grady Hendrix. And this is, I have an advanced reader copy through, I believe, NetGalley. You know, I love a good vampire story, and uh, this one caught my eye. I Like I said, I just started it. I'm just a few chapters in, but the preface that uh, Grady Hendrix wrote was really sweet. He grew up in the South, in South Carolina, the novel set in Charleston. And, you know, he was writing, he, he said, you know, when I grew up, you know, housewives were lame, you know, you never really appreciated your mom. They were just kind of embarrassing. But, you know, as the older he got, the more he realizes how much they were dealing with and that the role 
that his parents played anyway was to make sure the kids didn't know what hardships were out there and things like that. So right. he has come to understand how strong his mom is. So what he wanted to do with this book was pit his mom against Dracula. <laughs> That's awesome. Wait, so wait, wait. the novel starts. It's really funny. This woman, um, you know, Southern women of a certain class, you know, she wants to do this really kind of high literary book club where they're reading only, you know, the great Western classics. And the woman who's in charge of leading the discussion hasn't read the book. And she tries to fake her way through it, doesn't get very far. Um, and then there's this group of other women, one of them who's a Yankee, who are outside and they're like, kind of like, come here, you know, we're going to be reading this book. And it's like a true crime, you know, <laughs> blood pounding kind of book. So they start reading those. That's where I am right now. It's off to a great start. And this book comes out sometime this spring. I'm, I didn't write the date down, but it is forthcoming. And again, that's the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires by Grady Hendrix. Well, that's a great segue to the novel I'm reading, which is called A Good Marriage by Kimberly McCrete. We are going to be hosting an event with Kimberly in May. More to come on that in the future. But just a heads up, the book is not out yet. I think it comes out in early May. Let's see if I can. Yeah, May 2020. Okay. I'll put the exact date if I can figure it out in the show notes. Chris, this book has blood splatter. <laughs> it's about a marriage uh, gone awry because the wife is found dead at the bottom of the stairs in their home and the husband is accused of the murder so it's a cast of characters it takes place in park slope brooklyn it's very new york she does uses a lot of the um tropes that you think of of people who live in park slope um and then there's also it'll be interesting to see what they do with the audio because there's also sections with depositions of people mm -hmm. and um there's a an internet scandal going on where people whose kids go to the private school where their son goes there's been a hacking scandal so there's little you know chapters that deal with that so it's very interesting in that way and then the other chapters are taking place from various points of view, including the lawyer who's hired to help the husband and things like that. So I'm really enjoying it, despite the fact that there's blood splatter. <laughs> <laughs> it, there's twists and turns, which I think Kimberly McCrate is really known for. I definitely haven't seen a couple things coming and I'm almost done with it. And I can't wait to see how it ends. That's great. I look forward to the reading that one. And and she wrote um, Finding Amelia, which was... A Reconstructing Amelia. Reconstructing. <laughs> or constricting. Maybe she was constricted. I didn't read it. Reconstructing Amelia. But then she also wrote that YA series. And that's where we did do a... We moderated an event with her at the book club bookstore. And uh, for that final book in the series coming out, the right. trilogy, I should right. say. Um, and that was a really cool trilogy. I really liked it. We both read all three books. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember the name of it. I'll put it in the show notes. So A Good Marriage by Kimberly McCrate. So what have you just read? So I read a book that surprised me. It's been on my radar for a while. And last week I had to do a, a big drive for work up to Boston. And I was meeting uh, with my client and his team that does a lot of work on naturalistic decision making. 
and I've been wanting to read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know, which is very similar. Malcolm Gladwell and my client are peers. And so I thought, well, if nothing else, it'll give me something to talk about (laughs) with with these people who are really smart. And um, one of the reasons I really wanted to read this is because it's an enhanced audiobook is what they're calling it. So they Malcolm Gladwell, it's nonfiction. And he, and you know, in the in the process of researching his book, he interviewed a lot of people and read a lot of documentation. And so as he's he narrates the book, and as he's reading it, he'll stop and, you know, maybe there, there'll be a um, court transcript that's read, or something like that, or an actual interview with a police officer, you know, things that are relevant to the story. That's cool. Or And what he's talking about with it is how we constantly in our lives and throughout our days have interactions with people that we don't know. And we make assumptions about them. And we in those assumptions influence the way that we interact with each other. And he uses the the cases of Bernie Madoff, Amanda Knox, Sylvia Plath, Neville Chamberlain, and Sandra Bland throughout the course of the book. And then he also utilizes music and he uses Janelle Monet's Hell You Talking About. And it's the perfect piece of music for this book because it's all about, you know, the different people who've been shot and killed, sadly, by police officers, including Sandra Bland. And Sandra Bland is really the starting point of the story and the ending point of the story. I keep saying story. Is that inappropriate when it's, I mean, he's telling. Narrative. It's, yeah. I mean, yeah, he is. I mean, I think a nonfiction writer is a storyteller as well. I yeah. Mean, yeah. But it depends on the type of nonfiction. I guess he's telling the stories of these individual cases and things like that. Yeah. So they're not characters, you know, yeah. but although I've gone back and forth with a memoir writer friend of mine about that, that mm-hmm. people when you, you know, I've seen people who write memoir in person talk about their books and they talk about the characters in their books. Mm-hmm. And it's like, they're not really characters. They're people. They're real people, you know, but I guess it is common to refer to them as characters. Yeah. Well, it could be, especially if you're looking at it as that you are constructing a story and you're not trying to write something that is more autobiographical where you are trying to like do factual stuff. Like it's, I think memoirists sometimes, you know, realize that they are, they have the story about somebody and who somebody is in relation to their life, maybe. Right. Yeah, that's true. And they're telling a story. So. Yeah. So anyway, I loved it. It made my drive seamlessly quick, even though I was in rush hour traffic and all of that. And Malcolm Gladwell has a podcast called Revisionist History. It's one of the most popular podcasts out there. He has a wonderful voice. He's really easy to listen to. The only thing that I did occasionally find challenging about it was that when he would, these enhanced audio portions where he would interview someone maybe, Um, sometimes the sound was different. Mm -hmm. So I found myself, you know, going up and going down with my audio, which people probably have to do when they're listening to us. So (laughs) on occasion, I I really recommend it. And I think this is going to be something that we see moving forward in the audiobook industry in general, that these enhanced audiobooks where people have discussions or things like that, or music or, Mm -hmm. you know, 
yeah, supplementary tax. Yeah. I think that's great. It's like having a living footnote or something right. or a speaking footnote, I should say. Or Yeah. Yeah. And so again, that's uh, Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. What right. did you just read? Well, I finished Simone St. James's forthcoming novel, The Sundown Motel. Just finished it. It's a bit of horror, a bit of mystery thriller. I'm not sure what I think of it yet. Like, you know, I read it. I was enjoying it. There were times when I was a little confused about the narrative because it goes back and forth between a woman in the 80s and her niece in contemporary times. The woman disappeared from this hotel when she was 20. And now the niece is at the, working at this hotel trying to figure out what happened to her aunt. The hotel itself is in New York. They're both from Illinois. I'm not sure what difference that makes, other than that they've both been drawn to this place. So you're getting the story of what happened to the aunt from the aunt, but also from the niece as she's piecing things together and hearing stories from community members. So sometimes that was a little confusing at times and or repetitive. Mm. But I really like the premise I, I just kind of felt like I didn't I didn't really know the characters. I didn't feel for them as much as I did as, for example, St. James's novel, uh, her most recent one, The Broken Girls. I didn't feel as invested in them mm -hmm. as in the characters. Yeah. And I wanted more ghost action than there was or more integration with the story. I have a good book for you that has ghost sex if you want it. That poltergeist sex? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, so it was... You, so you expected it to be like a little bit more creepy ghost story than it, than it ended yes. up Yes. Like yeah. if you, if somebody out there wants to read ghost stories, but you don't like it to get really heavy and totally scary, this would be a great read for you because it is creepy enough to make you kind of feel like, did I lock my door? You know, kind of thing. <laughs> um, and what is that creak in the floor? But you're not going to, I don't think, be terrified. Again, this is all subjective because... We all have different levels of what terrifies us. I get that. I did enjoy it. I can't wait to um, hear her talk next week when we go up to see her at Northshire. Um, and again, that was The Sundown Motel by Simone St. James. It's coming out later this month. Yeah, I think it actually comes out the day this podcast goes live. Probably on Tuesday. On Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So check it out if you like, you know, horror, thriller, mystery. I didn't read anything else. Did you read anything else? Yeah, I did. I read a couple other things. I actually had two DNFs. Mm. Did not finish. The first was River by Esther Kinsky. This is one that was the joint read for the Read More German Books reading challenge. I just couldn't get into it. I tried it like three different times and it just wasn't grabbing me. So I returned it to the library when it was due. Um, maybe I'll try that one again in the future because it does sound interesting to me. That's the one where the protagonist is reflecting on her life and situations with different rivers that she's traveled to or seen on her travels. The other book was a new YA book that caught my eye at the library, Blood Countess. It's by Lana Popovic. Blood Countess, yes, it's about a woman vampire I got to page 50 and like nothing was really happening yet. And I thought I'm, I'm moving on, but you know, again, new YA, if you're interested, check that one out. But I did finish. Maybe you should talk to someone that was the 
nonfiction memoir that I was reading by Lori Gottlieb, which I talked about last episode with her namaste in bed t-shirt that she or <laughs> pajama top that she accidentally wore to work one day i love it um i really enjoyed this book she combines her own therapy and what she's learning and her own therapy therapy with her clients therapy that she's you know the therapist um working with these clients on and a lot of her backstory and i love the way she wove all of these together and I just thought the examples that she had about different therapeutic techniques and different struggles and situations that we all have faced at different times in our life and or will or hopefully won't in some very um, sad cases, I just really liked them and appreciated them. It was very applicable mm -hmm. and yeah. understandable. And one thing I wanted to read, we've talked about forgiveness before on the podcast We've talked about compassion and stuff, um, but she talks about the issue of forced forgiveness. So I'm going to read kind of like two paragraphs. There's a term we use in therapy, forced forgiveness. Sometimes people feel that in order to get past a trauma, they need to forgive whoever caused the damage. The parent who sexually assaulted them, the burglar who robbed their house, the gang member who killed their son. They're told by well-meaning people that until they can forgive, they'll hold on to the anger. And then she writes later, but too often people feel pressured to forgive and then end up believing that something's wrong with them if they can't quite get there, that they aren't enlightened enough or strong enough or compassionate enough. So what I say is this, you can have compassion without forgiving. There are many ways to move on. And pretending to feel a certain way isn't one of them. And oh, I just really I love that. I really love that too, because there there is this push to forgive that you have to forgive. And I firmly believe there are some things that are just not forgivable. Mm -hmm. You can have compassion in understanding of why the person did what they did, but that doesn't mean you have to forgive them. Mm -hmm. And I just really like that affirmation. Yeah, and I actually, you know, I'm no therapist, but I think the most important person to have compassion for is yourself. Right. You know, yeah. and to forgive yourself for, you know, what struggles you have, and that it's really not your job necessarily to forgive the perpetrator. Exactly. Right. You know? yeah. yeah. You know, she also talks um, in one point about minimizing our own pain. Mm hmm by saying things like, well, at least I don't have cancer or at least X, Y, Z. And just how unhelpful that is, is that, you know, we have to confront our pain and acknowledge our pain and, and deal with it and not minimize it. Right. And our pain is our pain. And I think it's good to have context for your life and to, you know, that that helps you to eventually be able to get to gratitude for your life. Mm -hmm. But your, your pain and your struggles are your own. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I really enjoyed the book. I really recommend it. If you don't know what therapy is and you want to learn a little bit, or if you are a therapy geek and enjoy reading about it, it's, it's a great book. Now, I forget, did you read it or listen to it? I read it. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I read that. And it, again, the title is, uh, let me give you the full title. Maybe you should talk to someone, a therapist, her therapist, and our lives revealed. And that's by Lori Gottlieb. And that's the one you probably have seen it because it was very popular. It has a blue cover with a box of tissue 
a yellow box of tissue with you know tissue on it. So um, really, really enjoyed it. I'm so glad. Oh, I also just read, and this is going to lead us to Biblio Adventures. I read My Name is Lucy Barton by Elizabeth Strout. And I read that because we had a big old Biblio adventure we to did. the Big Apple to see Laura Linney in the play My Name is Lucy Barton. Right. This was inspired by Aunt Ellen. Thank you, Aunt Ellen. Thank you, Aunt Ellen. She reached out and wanted us to come to town. I think the inspiration originally was for my birthday, but um, mostly it was that she found this play and said, hey, we should all go. And so she picked a weekend in February and we got tickets and there we were last Saturday. Yeah. And I, you and Aunt Ellen both read the book. I hadn't read it. I hadn't read anything by Elizabeth Strout yet. And I I looked at the audio and I saw the audio was like super short. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just read the book if it's that short. And we were at the library, what I think like the Wednesday or Thursday before. And I said to myself, well, if the library has it on the shelf, I'll read it. And I went to the shelf and there it was. So it's like, okay, I guess I'm reading it. I love the book. It is a short novel. It is, I think it's, let's see, under 200 pages, I think. Yeah, it's 191 pages. You know, I really didn't know much about it. I learned more about it initially just from reading the description of the play, that it's about a woman who's in a hospital bed for months, um, recovering from a simple surgery, but she develops an infection. And eventually her mom, who she hasn't seen since she left as a you know kid going off from college, comes to sit with her after her husband, who the family doesn't really like for uh, certain reasons calls and says would you go and kind of babysit her is the words that the mom uses right because the husband is at home taking care of her two children and their life apparently yeah yeah and doesn't like to go to the hospital (laughs) right yeah because he hates hospitals um and i you know i had an uncle like that who couldn't stand hospitals he just could not bear to be in them and even when his his wife was in with breast cancer in the 60s and then later with ovarian cancer like he would barely go and see her yeah well one of the ironies in the in the book and the play is that the husband doesn't he hates hospitals so much that originally his wife is put into a room with a, a roommate and he um, decides it'd be in her best interest and their best interest for her to be put in a single room but then never come to visit her. So she's put into a single room and lonely. Yeah, because he's also busy doing something else other than just taking care of the kids. I don't want to give too many spoilers. Yeah. But it's one of these books that's so sparse. Like, it's so well-written that, like, one sentence, you know, you read it and you're just like, whoa. Like, there's a humongous backstory right there from just that one sentence. It's beautiful. It is a beautiful story. And there's so much packed into it. Elizabeth Strout is a master of her craft. Oh, she sure is. Yeah. So Lucy Barton comes from rural Illinois, and her family's not just poor, they're in poverty, as somebody in the book makes that distinction. They're actually living in a garage, the great uncle's garage. The great uncle's living in the house and apparently doesn't let the family come and live with them. So they're living in this garage for quite a bunch of their childhood. You know, but there's this line, and after the play, there was a talk back, and the person leading the talk back really wanted to get people's opinion on this whole issue of ruthlessness, because somebody says to Lucy Barton, 
you need to be ruthless as an artist because she's a writer right she's a writer and this guy says this to her and so she she is ruthless is mm -hmm. she is she not like the the thing is is that she's writing this story the narrator is writing this story as a successful author mm -hmm. and she's looking back on this story and the story starts in the hotel in the hospital room but it's so much about her life it's about her parents life it's about her relationship to her family and her mother particularly yeah yeah and then her father and her brother and their relationship and then her husband and how that triggers stuff and her father it is such a complex book for being so short. Yeah, I, I told I chucked it out of the library, but I really want to buy a copy and read it because I'm sure I'm going to mark the hell out of it. Yeah, you might also just move on to one of her other books because she's <laughs> such a great writer. She's the writer, just to remind listeners, she's the writer of Olive Kittredge, the short story collection. And then just recently, um, Olive again came out, uh, which is years later. Olive Kittredge came out a long time ago. Yeah. And then she also has a book called Anything is Possible, which Lucy Barton makes an appearance right. in. Yeah. So the town that she comes from is a fictional town called Amgash, Illinois, which is great because Amgash, what does it stand? I, I think it, it stands for American gash, as in cutting, mm. as in pain and divisions and things like that, because there's so much in the book that wasn't in the adaptation. And this play adaptation was originally done for a UK audience. Mm -hmm. So they took out some of the things that related to American history that I just thought were fascinating. Like, you know, here's the mom. She's, you know, I use the phrase dirt poor because apparently, according to Lucy, that's what they are, like completely poor. There are no books in the house. They don't even have a Bible in the house. You mm -hmm. know, there's nothing to read in the house. And the mother gets all righteous at one point when Lucy calls them dirt or trash. She's like, we're not trash. You know, our people came over on the, you know, on the, the Mayflower, Mayflower or whatever. Yeah. And she's like, and the best of best of them, the bravest of them moved to the Midwest and settled the Midwest. You know, we're pioneers. We're great people. Don't you ever forget. Mm -hmm. And what I thought was really fascinating was the relationship that Lucy and her father have to Native Americans and the history, the historical Native Americans, and then also some reenactments that are happening in one scene. Mm -hmm. uh, Black Hawk, especially Lucy, gets fascinated with him, who was a Native American chief in the area. And she's learning about this in school. And she goes home and says to her mom, Mom, you know, did you did you know what we did to the Indians? And she says, you know, I don't give a damn what we did to the Indians. Mm -hmm. And it's just that to me, you know, there's so much talk about certain tribal instincts in American society today, you know, that you have this, you know, white people who've been here forever who really don't give a damn mm -hmm. of what anybody did to anybody. They're here now and they may not have anything, but they have this heritage that they think they have. Right. It's fascinating. It is. So fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And Lori Linney, Laura Linney did such a good job. She, you know, she's, she, it's a one woman show. She's in, you know, the hospital bed as the, the main character, the writer, but then she gets up and sits in a chair and is the mother mm -hmm. and changes her voice completely with that great Illinois accent. And I just was compelled the entire play. Yeah. really good absolutely yeah. yeah just the she especially the mom mm -hmm. like she totally nailed 
the mom in a lot of ways and really changed the way I saw the character. Mm -hmm. Like when I was reading the character, I was actually picturing one of my grandmothers and, you know, somebody who was a little bit quieter, but, you know, she wasn't. She was loud. Mm Mm-hmm. And very opinionated. Very opinionated. Like, she talks about everybody else's marriage. That's the thing that the mom fixates on. And everyone else's children. Everyone else's children. Yeah. And it's fascinating because her marriage is really problematic. Yeah. And there are hints about her dad and his PTSD and great, great story, great acting. There's something else I wanted to say. Oh, the Little House on the Prairie books make an appearance, Mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting that... And and that's again another way of looking at like American culture, right? The brother loves the uh, the Little House on the Prairie books and rereads them, mm-hmm. like compulsively rereads them. Right. Whereas Lucy didn't like them. Mm-hmm. She wanted to read about Blackhawk and his biography, and there is tension between white settlers and Native Americans in Little House on the Prairie that you know kind of gets glosses over in some way. After reading Prairie Fires, mm-hmm. we've talked about that in past episodes. So, yeah. again, just brilliant book. I'm yeah. so happy I read it before I saw the play. Yeah, yeah. And thank yeah. you to Aunt Ellen for making all of this happen. Absolutely. We appreciate it. So great to see her. And the show was running, I think, until the beginning of March, if you'd want to see it. It's a limited engagement, an eight-week run. And, again, this was an adaptation that was done by – who did the adaptation – Oh, yeah. Adaptation by Rona Monroe. It was really well done. Yeah, really well done. And there was a talk back afterwards. I think I mentioned that already, but um, some people in the audience had a real hard time with the idea of ruthlessness Mm. and and claiming yourself and claiming your voice and claiming who you are. And so I thought just the talk back was fascinating to to see what other people were thinking. So again... That was Lucy. Uh, my name is Lucy Barton by Elizabeth Strout. Great. Well, Chris, sadly, after the play, went home. Wah, wah. I did. But you know what I did earlier that day? I went to the New York Public Library. Oh, that's right. You went in yeah. early. I went in early to do some writing. And I went into the periodicals room, which I hadn't worked in that room before. It's a smaller room. Still super gorgeous. I mean, just beautiful woodwork all over the walls and ceiling just gorgeous space um and then i did run over to um kino kunia afterwards before i had lunch because i just at least had to poke my head in and see what was on the new tables and whatnot yeah i didn't get downstairs to the stationary section because i had to meet you all at the theater but that was a fun little biblio adventure yeah yeah, so then I did leave, sadly, right yes. after the play. And you? I stuck around with the gentleman caller. We spent the night. And then um, I dragged everyone to McNally Jackson Bookstore on Prince Street, which is hands down one of my favorite bookstores of all time. It was very crowded because it was Sunday afternoon and it was beautiful. The weather last weekend was just beautiful, which was yeah, great made, for walking it, around yeah, the city. It's yeah. always nice to go to New York in good weather. And when I was there, I picked up two books. I picked up Black is the Body, Stories from My Grandmother's Time, My Mother's Time, and Mine by Emily Bernard. And um, I also picked up Night Theater by Vikram Perilkar. And that is my upcoming book club book. So I was thrilled to find a copy there. And um, I was in line at their cafe 
with the gentleman caller who whose idea of a good vacation day is to get at least three cappuccinos. <laughs> so I think we were on number two at the bookstore and we're in line. At, we're paying and I had ordered a piece of lemon cake. And I, of course, I, I'm discussing with the barista that I would like it was one of those pound cakes that I wanted a piece from the middle. <laughs> he was being very indulgent of me. Very sweet, sweet young man. And then I turned my head and up walks very quickly Richard Thomas, who is the actor from the Waltons, John Boy. Wow. And I literally gasped, (gasps) which was a little embarrassing. And then I turned and I mouthed to Jim, do you know who that is? And Jim's like, no, I have no idea who that is. And I so desperately wanted to say, good night, John Boy. (laughs) I didn't. I refrained. But I just couldn't. Like, I mean, when if you go to New York frequently enough, you have star sightings. Right. Probably like every handful of times I've seen Neil Patrick Harris and other, you know, actors. Oprah. Yeah, Oprah. That's Mm -hmm. right. And Gail. You know, and you, you know, you, you're always surprised because you have this moment of the gasp and then you look at him and you're like, oh, they're just a person, mm-hmm. you know, but he gets his coffee and walks off and I turned to Jim and I said, oh my God, I so desperately wanted to say good night, John boy. <laughs> and he was like, I am so glad you refrained because I'm sure he's never heard that before. <laughs> Oh, oh it awesome. was funny. He's he looks exactly the same as he did in his Waltons days, you know, a little bit older. And I was such a huge fan of the Waltons. Oh, see, I, I didn't like that, that show. show. Oh, really? Yeah. Why? I I don't know if it was because it's what my grandmother watched, and mm. it was just like, oh dear God, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not really sure. I loved it. Yeah. Now I don't think I watched it for very many years because I watched an interview with him where he talked about how many people say goodnight John Boy to him, which made me very glad I didn't. But he said, if I had a cent for every time someone said that to me, I'd be a very wealthy man. But apparently he ended up leaving the show and they replaced his character with another actor, which I didn't know any of that. So obviously I didn't stick with watching it. Yeah. um, I did love that show. I mean, it makes just makes me think about, you know, being a kid. Yeah. See, I was more into Scooby-Doo and... Mm. Yeah, that maybe I don't know. Well, you but know? the Waltons was like a weeknight show, I think. Whereas yeah. Scooby Doo, I always think of like there was the host of shows that were on Saturday morning. Yeah, but maybe you know, it, it could have just been when I had to go get babysat at Grandma's house. That was what was on, mm-hmm. and you had to be quiet, and because mm-hmm. the Waltons yeah. were on, you yeah. know, it could have <laughs> just been that you know rebelling against authority thing. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. if I watched it now, I'd probably really enjoy it. So I wonder if you saw him at McNally Jackson, you might not have known who it was either. Oh, I'd know him with that mole oh, yeah. on his cheek. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, completely. So that was my star sighting. That's great. And McNally Jackson, I mean, I could spend hours in that store. Yeah. I love it so much. I love that place. I love how they have different countries broken out. Mm-hmm. It's the only bookstore I think I've been in in the United States that breaks it out by like, here's Australian. Right. And, you know. And they had two really cool displays on the wall. They have a downstairs and it was on the wall leading downstairs. And one of it, one of them was their top 60 books in their 15 years in business, which was fascinating. Yeah. So what was number one? Or did they not rank them? They were just the top. 
Oh, you know, I'd have to look at the picture. Okay. And I don't know if it was like number one or just the 60. Yeah. Okay. But then they did have their top 30 books from that last month from January. And the number one was Little Women. Fantastic. Which I think probably has something to do with the movie. But also, I just thought that was fantastic. That You know, there it was. And it was a really cool cover that I'd never seen. I'll post that some at some point on our social media. I don't think I posted it yet. So, so it was a good weekend. So upcoming jaunts coming up May 1st and 2nd of 2020 is Booktopia up at Northshire in Manchester. We have, we talk about Booktopia so often on the podcast because it's through Booktopia that Chris and I met. Yeah. And then it's also through Northshire Bookstore when Chris and I did a one-day drive there and back for an event that we decided to launch the Book Cougars podcast. Right. Yeah, we talk. I mean, it's like a four, four-and-a-half-hour drive for us. We talked all the way up there. We saw the event, which was Ruth Franklin talking about her new biography of Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life, which is excellent. And this is, you know, three years ago now. Right. And we talked all the way back. And that's how the podcast idea started because Anne and Michael were retiring books on the nightstand. And they're the ones who, in partnership with Northshire Bookstore, started Booktopia. Right. So we thought we would take the opportunity because tickets are on sale now for Booktopia and they do sell out to talk with Daffith Wood, who is the events and community coordinator at Northshire. Yeah. So enjoy listening to him tell you all about Booktopia. And then we will be back to have our read-along discussion of Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. Bye for now. Hi, everyone. We are thrilled today to have Daffith, the Events and Community Coordinator at Northshire Bookstore, with us to tell us about Booktopia 2020. Hi, good morning, uh, or afternoon as the case may be. Well, I am really excited about um, Booktopia 2020. Booktopia is, this is the the 10th anniversary of a um, special literary festival, a curated weekend that was uh, established by um, Penguin Random House uh, reps, Michael Kindness and Ann Kingman about 10 years ago. And Booktopia, they, they initially chose Northshire. This emerged from their, um, their podcast, uh, Books on the Nightstand. And uh, it became this, this literary festival that we've, we've hosted every year uh, since then. And so this is the 10th anniversary of it. And what's really special about it um, compared to you know, the Texas Book Festival or, or other ones like that is that it's much more intimate. Um, we have the last two years, which are the ones that I've been involved with it, uh, we've had 10 guests, um, a returning uh, alum who was at a Booktopia past. Uh, we've got an industry insider, as we call them. And then we have um, eight different authors of recently published books. Um, it's also got a, a lot of uh, love for it in in publishing world itself, because what's I really love about it is the attendees are rabid. They are great (laughs) book lovers. They're great proselytizers of the books in the best of possible ways. Um, They're passionate. Um, You know, in December, they start emailing me. When's the information about Booktopia coming out? When are tickets on sale? What's the lineup? And, you know, sometimes we're still finalizing things 
uh, even into late January. Yeah, um, yeah. So these these people and they they come in and when they get here, the other aspect of it that a lot of the authors love is that they tend to have read the books before the event. So yeah, yeah. the Q and A's are really engaging and really informed, and uh, the authors just love it. Definitely. Those conversations are so great. And I know the authors, some of them are just so amazed to have these in-depth conversations about their books with a, a room full of people. Right. Because so many of author events are authors, you know, speaking to people who haven't read the book. And part of the point is to try to sell copies of their book and convince people <laughs> it's worth reading. And when they get to the Booktopia, you know, there are there are people who are fanning over them and so thrilled to meet them and yeah. know all the intricacies of the book and have deep, thoughtful questions, which is really fun. Yeah. And hey, how many people um, usually come? How many people usually attend? Last year we had 105 and this year we're shooting for 110. Great. And it usually does sell out. So we want our listeners to know that we're going to let you know who the authors are, which is very exciting, and also give you information about how you can purchase tickets. So drum roll, <laughs> who's going to be featured this year? Well, we I, I've got I'm, I'm really, really excited about our lineup this year. Our industry insider, first of all, it's Craig Poplars, who is an old friend of Northshire back from when he worked at Algonquin. And last year he became the publisher of Tin House Books. And so he is our uh, he's going to talk about do a little talk like we had last year. Uh, sort of about the book industry. Uh, last year we saw sort of a, a Sarah Blake's The Guest Book move the, the sort of from what happens after the author sends it to the publisher and uh, you know, different changes in the picture. So we're going to, I'm looking forward to what Craig's got in store for us. And along with Craig, he's bringing one of his Tin House authors. And I'm very, very pleased to be hosting Rosalie Connect, whose new book is Vera Kelly is Not a Mystery. Um, we've got permission to uh, sell it extremely early. Craig promised us he'll have copies ready for us. We'll get them that weekend, May 1st and May 2nd. I read, just finished last week, her first Vera Kelly mystery, which was Who is Vera Kelly? And I, I just loved it. Um, I wrote a staff review. You can find it on the Northshire's, uh, Northshire Bookstores, um, our website. And uh, it, it's a very clever reinvention of the spy novel. Um, our returning alum it's uh, Vermont author Stephen Kiernan, who has appeared at Booktopia's past, and his new book is called Universe of Two, and it's about one of the uh, people that were involved in the um, creation of the atomic bomb, the person who, um, Charlie Fisk, the mathematician who, um, I believe, made the detonator, who designed it, and uh, sort of then the conscience that he feels and his pangs of conscience uh, love and redemption with his wife uh, that occurs after that. The one book that I've so far read of the new people that are showing with their titles, uh, it's a book I'm really excited about, and I've gotten a lot of other booksellers here excited too. It's Jessica Anthony's Enter the Aardvark, which is a charming, fast, fun, and like really sophisticated read. Uh, you've got, it's about this Republican congressman who's in the closet and his hopes for re-election are dashed when a giant taxidermied aardvark arrives at his apartment. 
Uh, and then there also at the same time, there's a second narrative going on about the Victorian taxidermist who, uh, who made the aardvark. Um, there's about four people here on staff that have really, everyone who's read it has loved it. And uh, we're all very pumped about it. Up next, we've got another Vermont author, Emily Bernard, whose uh, collection of essays, Black is the Body, Stories from My Grandmother's Time, My Mother's Time, and mine was selected by Oprah Magazine as one of the good books to look for last year. Uh, and the hardcover came out in 2019. The paperback just came out, and uh, we're really pumped to have her. We had her for uh, an event here, and um, I knew she was going to be just a great fit for, for Booktopia. So I've got a little, little insider knowledge on that one. Next up is a debut novelist, Megan Giddings, with her novel Lakewood. And um, the byline here says it evokes a terrifying world of medical experimentation, a, a mix part of uh, Handmaid's Tale, part Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. But it's a, it's a novel. And uh, I'm very excited about that one. I'm looking forward to digging into that one soon. We also have coming another, uh, another returning Booktopia alum. It's Rebecca Dinerstein Knight with her novel Hex. Uh, her previous book that she read from here, uh, I don't remember which year, it was before I started here, has been turned into a movie starring Jenny Slate and um, Lauren Groff, Jenny Slate, all kinds of people love love Hex, which has been billed as a breathtaking hypnotic novel about poison, antidotes, and obsessive love. Um, we have another nonfiction writer coming to Booktopia this year, and that's Mary Norris, the comma queen from The New Yorker. Her book, Greek to Me, is coming out in paperback. And I met her, had the, the fortune of meeting her and having dinner with her at uh, Winter Institute, uh, not this past year, but the previous year. And she's just a delight. It's a wonderful travelogue. I read this one, too. Uh, you know, it's a I, celebration I, of all things Greek. Go ahead. Right. Oh, sorry. To, yeah, I saw her at an event last year here in Connecticut, and it was a yeah. delightful event. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing her again. Yeah, she's she's just just charming, and we had a lovely time. So I know the Booktopians, which is what we call our attendees, are uh, are gonna love her. After her, we've got another debut novelist, uh, Molly Polig, a book called *The Unsuitable*, which is a sounds like a Victorian Gothic ghost story meets feminist uh, narrative. Uh, I can't wait to read this one as well. Um, this uh, woman believes. Her mother is in the scar that on her neck, and she's sort of being propositioned by all these suitors who she sort of scares away until someone comes who is uh, willing to deal with her, and his skin is silver. I, when I read the description of that, I just knew that sounds great. She's also the editor of Vogue Knitting, so if there's any knitters, um, I believe she might have some excellent pointers for you guys. Uh, and then the last author we've got for Booktopia 2020 book came out a couple weeks ago, Michael Zapata's The Lost Book of Adana Moreau, which is a, looks like a very uh, Borgesian novel. Uh, this is the next book I'm reading. I just started it the other night, a few pages into it, um, that mixes a Latin American sci-fi writer who's lost her manuscript, who's got a lost sci-fi novel manuscript. Likewise, the world of, of post-Katrina New Orleans, and I'm from Louisiana, so I couldn't resist it, and it sounds great, and the reviews of it are, are, are great, too. That's wonderful. Wow. That's, the, that's the lineup. I'm thrilled. 
So what we'll do is link to Northshire's page in our show notes because they have a wonderful Booktopia 2020 page that actually lists all the authors for you with a little bit of bio and information about each of their books. And then um, if I'm not mistaken, you also, if you purchase the books directly through Northshire as a Booktopian, you get 20% off. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. The the tickets for Booktopia, which when you go to our website, we've got it um, promoted to the front page. It's like right there, front and center. You click there, you've got all of the, the books listed, and then it'll take you to uh, a link to our Eventbrite page uh, where you can buy the tickets. And included in the cost of the ticket, it's not only all of the featured titles from our authors are 20% off every one of those that I just mentioned, but you'll also get a $50 gift card when you sign up, when you buy a ticket. Or when you arrive and get checked in on May 1st, the morning of uh, Friday, May 1st. Um, and then it also includes a Friday night dinner uh, that we have with all of the authors, a number of booksellers. And it's a, it's a real fun time. I, I write trivia questions. It's like a whole party. There's a Yankee book swap. Um, so it involves all of these things, including 20%. All of the books will be available before Booktopia, with the exception of Stephen Kiernan's Universe of Two and the new Rosalie Connect, which are, we have only got permission to sell for Booktopia early. And so that will be on sale May 1st and May 2nd. Everything else you can pick up. If you get your tickets, you'll get 20% off. You can order from us. We'll send them to you, et cetera. That's fantastic. Friday night is so much fun. It's it is, real it's crazy. crazy. Yeah. And it's really great too when you come alone. Emily and I have talked about this on the past on our podcast about don't be afraid of coming alone because you will have tons of people to talk to. It's a real friendly crowd. And it's, it's also, it's just the best of crowds. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, you also have people who you automatically have something in common with, which I think as someone who's traveled alone for years, you know, that can be tricky to, you know, end up in a town and, you know, just be by yourself the whole time, which I don't mind being by myself. But it's also can be tricky to walk into the door of something and feel like, oh, now I've got to make conversation. Yeah. Well, there's no lack of conversation in <laughs> Booktopia because you all have something in common. Right. You know, you're you're a book, you know, geek and you've read similar books. So it's really nice. Yeah, yeah I, I agree completely. I mean, these are the best people. They're all so excited. You've got these books you like and you can easily start a conversation. I feel the same way when I go into a group of, of people. I mean, I'm the events guy. I go up and do that like th several times a week. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I always feel that. And, you know, one thing like last year was my my first Booktopia. And, you know, it's a lot of work putting it together. Um, it consumes most of my March and April. And, sort of, you know, as I'm like putting the, the last uh, name tags together and putting in the lists of local recommended restaurants, some fatigue sets in. Uh, <laughs> at least I experienced that last time. But then the Thursday before Booktopia 2019, they started coming into the store and I was just completely energized and it was just the highlight of the year for me. Oh, that's Can't wait for 2020. Well, also if people are Facebook users, there's a wonderful group on Facebook that you can join called fans of Booktopia. And before Booktopia, I mean, it's actually very active all year, but before Booktopia starts, there are groups getting, you know, making plans to meet for dinners and there are people saying, hey, I'm flying into Albany. Can you help give me a rat? Anyone right, carpooling, yeah, carpooling, you know, so it's a great resource if you decide that you want to attend. Yeah, there are a great bunch of people on there and they're, they're, there's a terrific community. And I believe the plan is that we're going to I'm going to talk to the restaurant to make sure it's doing it 
Thai Basil, a local restaurant here of Thai food. They Booktopians tend to go there the Thursday night before. And then on the Saturday night, we have a little uh, quasi party at uh, Mulligan's Pub uh, after the, the big event that concludes Booktopia. Right. And the big event on Saturday night takes place in Northshire with all of the authors speaking for about five to 10 minutes. So it's kind of a, a final hurrah and really fun. Yes. Yeah, it's, the, the big event is amazing and like really moving too. Um, there's a whole aspect of it that's just sort of impassioned and it's great. Yeah, for sure. And the Northshire bookstore is just fantastic. I have to say it's, one of my absolute favorite indie bookstores, not only do you guys have great, like deep, you know, selection um, of books and different categories, you also have really great sidelines. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Anything from you can get a dress or note cards or beautiful candles or earrings or cookware, wrapping yeah. paper. They have a fantastic <laughs> children's section upstairs. Yeah. I've started my Christmas shopping there when I've been to Booktopia's past because yeah. you guys have such unique, really cool items. Yeah. No, thank you so much. I mean, I, I'm I'm still relatively new here. I started in June 2018, and man, the 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 sidelines and the floors they're they're dangerous even to me. I'm around it every day. Um, but yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. We've got a, a great selection of stuff. Our, our buyers, our, our sidelines buyer, and the children's buyer, and our adult book buyer, they just have a great eye for, for getting, getting what we, that's great. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on and talking with us about Booktopia and, and giving the rundown of the lineup. It's just a great group of people. Can't wait to meet them and read their books. Yeah. No, it's my pleasure. Written down. So yes. And again, um, listeners, we will link to the Northshire Booktopia 2020 page so you can find all the information, including how to buy tickets and get hotel rooms and bed and breakfast rooms and all that jazz. Thank you. Yes, that's right. Thanks for mentioning the hotels. Um, we have local partner hotels. They put up our authors and uh, they've got special, special rates for our attendees. So when you're making reservations, be sure to mention that you're coming for Booktopia. Great. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you guys so much. Looking forward to it. Great. Same here. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Well, hey, everyone, we are back. Hope you enjoyed that brief conversation with Daphid. We are now going to jump into our conversation about Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead by Olga Tukarchuk, which was our read-along, our first read-along of 2020. Yeah, so exciting. Um, and it's a translated work. Translated from Polish by Antonia Lloyd-Jones. Yeah, and I think she did a really fantastic job. There's a lot going on in this book. Yes. <laughs> Um, so a brief synopsis, this is about our main protagonist, Janina, who lives in Poland in the cold. The book's very it's cold. Yeah. It's winter. But she takes care of seven homes that are summer homes for various residents of this little village. So she's there year round with her animals and in her home. And the opening scene is about a murder that takes place, right? Or a, a death. Or a death. Or death, yeah. Right. And just so you know, if you haven't read the book yet, we are going to be talking about spoilers probably. This is a a, a read-along, so right. if you don't Spoiler want to hear rich. it, stop listening and come back after you've read the novel. Right. 
And as is our Goodreads page where there's a conversation happening there that will be there forever as far as we know. So if you read it six months from now, feel free to jump on the Goodreads page. But it too has spoilers. Right. Right. So there is a death that Janina goes to investigate with her friend. With her friend, fellow neighbor. It's It's a guy who choked to death on a deer bone. He's a hunter. Right. And I've heard this called a animal rights murder mystery. And Janina is definitely on the side of the animals. Indeed. And one of the things that's really interesting is that she doesn't call anyone by their given name. She calls them things like Dizzy, Oddball, Bigfoot. Bigfoot is the one that choked on a deer bone. (laughs) And I just want to read a little piece about what Janina thinks about surnames. What a lack of imagination it is to have official first names and surnames. No one ever remembers them. They're so divorced from the person and so banal that they don't remind us of them at all. What's more, each generation has its own trends and suddenly everyone's named Magdalena, Patrick, or God forbid, Janina. (laughs) So she's not a fan of her own name. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, you know, Janina, I feel your pain because, as everyone knows, I'm terrible with names. And I love the idea of meeting someone and then just identifying them in your mind from there on. You mm-hmm. know, oh, he's got big feet. Yo, Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. And the interesting thing, too, about, you know, even in this little portion that I just read, there's a lot of interesting capitalization that goes on. So in that part I just read, person is capitalized. Yeah. You know, which is so interesting. And I never quite figured out the capitalization. And I didn't know if it had something to do maybe with translation. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know that much about Polish. But I know in German, you know, nouns are capitalized Mm, quite often. So I don't know if it could have something to do with that. No. So anyway, Janina, who Chris implied already is an animal activist of sorts, is trying to convince everyone around her, including the police department, that it's actually the animals that are uprising. And killing people because there are a couple deaths in the neighborhood after Bigfoot dies. So the opening scene, I have to say, like, here's the opening scene. This guy is dead. He's laying there, I think, just in his underwear. And they decide to dress him. Right. Because he needs, you know, that's just awful to be seen in your underwear dead. So they're dressing him properly in a suit that barely fits that he's probably hasn't worn in, you know, 40 years. So you can tell kind of like that these are older people who have a sense of decorum. But you're thinking like, oh, my God, don't touch the body. Like the investigation (laughs) has to happen. And so you find out, is it Oddball who goes with her? Mm -hmm. You find out that Oddball's son is actually one of the local detectives. Who comes and Janina's surprised that, wow, that's your son kind right. of situation. Right. But so uh, these guys, like this, the one guy who dies ends up in a well, head down in a well. Not a good way to go. With deer footprints all around all the All around, yeah. So she's just like the deer, you know, look at all these footprints. The deer did it. You know, they got mad because the guy's also a hunter. Right. But unfortunately, as the police are finally getting there, the snow is melting. So the footprints are disappearing. And, you know, Janina's an older woman. And throughout the book, there is this sense of, 
you know, as she says at one point, you know, they think that she's just an old woman who's gone off her rocker because she lives alone in the winter in, in the woods. In the of. woods, yeah. right? You know, yeah. so there is that dismissal of older women mm-hmm. that's going on for sure. And she also suffers from attacks, and I'm using air quotes. Yeah, here. her ailments. As her, she calls her ailments. Them. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because I also read this book with my book club and one of the people in my book club is a doctor. So she said, oh, when I was reading that, I thought, oh, she has acute intermittent porphyria. And I was like, oh, me too. No, I'm just (laughs) kidding. Which apparently is a, a real, you know, a real disease, obviously. And some of the symptoms of it, I'm going to read this little passage. So this is Janina. I lay up for several days, subdued by my body's rebellions. I patiently endured fits of numbness in my legs and the unbearable sensation of fire burning within them. I pissed red and can confirm that a toilet bowl filled with red liquid is a dreadful sight. I drew the curtains for I could not bear the bright March light reflected off the snow. Pain lashed my brain. And I looked up this acute intermittent porphyria And it's one of the symptoms is red urine and abdominal pain and you get anxiety and depression. So one of the questions that's, you know, some of our, you know, joint readers brought up and that I thought too, as I was reading this is, is Janina kind of off her rocker or is she suffering from an illness that affects her mental stability? Right. That, that is a question. I think everyone has said that they love her mm-hmm. and you can't help but admire her. I mean, she's funny. She has a wicked sense of humor. She's really smart. Right. You know, she's yeah. she teaches English to Polish kids in town. You find out later on that her primary career had been as an engineer. She built bridges, which was like, wow. Yeah. You know, no dummy. She's really into astrology. Which I loved. Yeah. Now, I don't know how you felt about that. There, Our buddy Ryan let us know about a New York Times review written by Sloane Crosley. And in it, she said, the author would make a good funeral guest. <laughs> <laughs> and one of her criticisms was that the only, only the extended passages on astrology threatened to derail the reader. Lyrical as they are, they could be airlifted out of the novel without causing any structural damage. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that. Okay, do tell, because well, I do too. So I've been thinking about Janina after reading um, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, mm. because in there, uh, Gottlieb wrote about the four ultimate concerns that people have. And these were, I guess it's work based on uh, the work of Irvin Yalom, who's an existential psychiatrist who talks about people's primary concerns are death, isolation, freedom, and meaninglessness. Mm. And I'm thinking so much about her, Janina's age and her isolation, her infirmary, her, her personality, you know, she's definitely not a gregarious kind of person at all. Um, And I think there's, you give up a lot of control when you have more freedom you know, she's not into religion. Mm-hmm. And there's scenes about that in mm-hmm. the book. Um, so I but I think, you know, she she has, has this interest in astrology, because it gives her life meaning. And it helps her create meaning about the chaos of the world. You know, it helps her, she says that she can pre- 
predict people's death dates. Right. You know, down to the day. And but it's a way for her to create meaning and to understand the world, I think, around her. And you think like what an interesting kind of contrast between her life as an engineer. Right. Which is very exact and matter of fact. And then, you know, having this system. But, you know, astrology very much is about positions mm -hmm. at a certain time. So it is also very, like, mathematical and precise in a lot of ways. And and her anger is just raging throughout this book as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I had a lot of problems with a lot of the blurbs I saw about the book about how funny this book is. It's the funniest book of the year. It's so funny. It's so humorous, blah, blah, blah. And, yes, there were some laugh-out-loud lines, but it's also a deeply sad book mm. about a woman who is old and alone and in pain whose dogs have disappeared mm -hmm. and who is heartbroken over the treatment of animals in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So heartbroken. And she's being dismissed left and right. Hmm. Yeah. Absolutely dismissed. And then let me just say one more thing, because she talks about anger. And I've been, you know, we, we've talked about anger, I think, even back to like Little Women, that mm -hmm. scene when Marmy says, I'm angry every day of my life. So I always kind of my ears perk up when a woman character especially starts talking about anger. And she says at one point that but the truth is that anyone who feels anger and does not take action merely spreads the infection. It's true of anger. And then she says anger always leaves a large void behind it into which a flood of sorrow pours instantly and keeps flowing like a great river without beginning or end. And I think like that's kind of exactly where she is, yeah. you know, with this anger and she's doing things to express her anger. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I don't think she was mentally ill. I mean, there's a lot of question and I and there's question that, you know, that was brought up on the Goodreads page also. And I, I don't think she is. I mean, I think that if, if you have something going on with your kidneys and your urinary tract, you start to feel a little crazy. Right. And you don't always realize that that's where it's coming from. So I do think that it could have been somewhat disease related. Mm -hmm. But something does happen to her and her own animals that I think pushes her over the edge. Yeah. And that's when she starts to seek revenge. Right. You know, so I think everyone also has a breaking point. Mm -hmm. And I do think she's reached her breaking point, which partly could have to do with anger leeching, you know, exactly and a feeling of being out of control. But I did want to circle back to the astrology because I agree with you. I also think the book was very funny, though. And this is an example of and part of it, I think, is just a testament to Olga's writing, mm -hmm. you know. So this is a little snippet of, of how astrology comes to play in the book. My Venus is damaged or in exile. That's what you say of a planet that can't be found in the sign where it should be. What's more, Pluto is in a negative aspect to Venus, and in my case, Pluto rules the ascendant. The result of this situation is that I have, as I see it, lazy Venus syndrome. That's what I call this conformity. In this case, we're dealing with a person whom fortune has gifted generously, but who has entirely failed to use their potential. Such people are bright and intelligent, but don't apply themselves to their studies and use their intelligence to play card games or patience instead. They have beautiful bodies, but they destroy them through neglect, poison themselves with harmful substances, and ignore doctors and dentists. <laughs> so poor thing. Yeah. I mean, but I just thought that was hilarious. Lazy Venus syndrome. Yeah, I love that too. And that is pretty harsh judgment, though, too. I mean, yeah. 
is it missed opportunities or is it just life right exactly because you can't do everything and, no yeah and it can beat you down you know um i also just wanted to read a little excerpt about since she brought it up the dentist you know as you get older you find yourself visiting the dentist more and more yeah <laughs> it's not always a pleasurable experience and i loved this scene where she described the dentist remember we're in poland in the winter and she says, spring starts in May and is unwittingly heralded by the dentist who brings his ancient drilling equipment and his equally antique dental chair outside. He dusts it off with a few flicks of a cloth, one, two, three, and it's free of cobwebs and hay. Both pieces of equipment spent the winter in the barn and were only brought out from time to time when an urgent need arose. The dentist doesn't really work in winter. It's impossible to do anything here in winter. People lose interest in their health. And besides, it's dark and his sight is poor. <laughs> it's like, wow, not like going to the dentist where I live. Not at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's intense. I, you know, I, you know, our, our buddy Heather Harper Ellett is mm -hmm. a clinical therapist who wrote in, on Goodreads about whether or not um, Janina's what's what her symptoms were you know were they psychosomatic right. were they real and so i thought that was really interesting and i did read a profile on olga um that was in the new yorker and it was interesting to learn that olga studied psychology at university and she did specialize in clinical psychology and worked a little bit as a therapist, uh, especially with addicts, alcoholics, um, but she got burnt out. Mm. And she said, quote, I'm too neurotic to be a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was kind of really interesting. And then, you know, she turned to writing. Mm. And um, what was interesting after I read that profile, which is a really good profile, it was um, written by Ruth Franklin. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So that was a nice surprise. But one of the other things is uh, that you know, people have been like, wow, this is kind of interesting that she wrote this mystery. Yeah. Right. And how odd for somebody to win a Nobel who's written a mystery mm -hmm. because, you know, mysteries are usually so ghettoized and poo-pooed and frowned upon any type of genre literature. And so she was, Ruth Franklin's driving, you know, through Poland uh, with Olga and her current partner. And she's talking about why she decided to write this mystery and it was because she had this idea for a really big book and she knew it was going to take a long time and her publisher was waiting for the next book and I guess she had a deadline. So she decided to write a mystery oh. and she's like, they're so quick and easy. No wonder these people can write one a year. <laughs> and her partner, I guess, is kind of like, you know, shh, don't say things like that. Kind of, you know, <laughs> um, trying to keep her from, you know, saying yeah. really incriminating things or, or things people would jump on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, a mystery thriller, they do have. A certain structure yeah. that are expect so yeah. but i do think it's certainly not a conventional mystery and i think that's why people call it a literary mystery yeah like our buddy jenny from reading envy said that she could see the ending coming a mile away and i felt the same thing but that didn't bother me did that bother you what ending exactly who the actual murderer is oh I didn't see it coming until very near the end. Like I did, I had no idea okay. early on. After I did, it's like things started falling into right. place a yeah. lot more. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's she was really vicious, mm -hmm. you know, like, and that's another thing, you know, little old ladies. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you know, it's also unclear actually how old she is. I didn't think of her as that old. Well, yeah, I don't think she's like 80s or 90s, but mm-hmm. I think she could have. I mean, she has gray hair. She's old. Yeah, so am I, and I'm 51. <laughs> yeah, and I wonder, so I'm thinking like she could be like I mean, she went 60s, off into the 70s, sunset with a man, and there's a sex scene in the book and everything, you know? So. Yeah, I know. I just, the but there's, yeah. I and, mean, yeah. Which, I've just know, read a book about somebody in their 80s having sex. Oh, so I, think I think people have people sex until they're sex. in their hundreds, of right. course. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm daring to dream anyway. <laughs> well, <laughs> and Heather did talk about, you know, because she's a therapist, she talked about some, that the illness somatization, which is where you take your, you know, feelings of grief and guilt and you, they turn into physical ailments. Yeah. And I think there's a very good chance that she suffered from some of that as well, Janina, you know, yeah, because she's she, grieving the loss right. that she has. Yeah. And even that first scene when Oddball wakes her up, she's kind of stupefied because she'd taken some pills or medication, yeah. naturalistic things, but she feels pain in her bones. Mm-hmm. You know, and then there there is Bigfoot who choked to death on a bone. Yeah. You yeah, know, it's yeah, kind of yeah. like right there. The other thing I wanted to just mention was the title. And thank you to our buddy Sue, who did provide a link in Goodreads to the Blake poem, Proverbs mm-hmm. of Hell. There's a lot of Blake in this book because Janina and her friend are studying the poetry of Blake. I have to admit. I've never read him. Apparently, it, he is very environmental and, and animal focused. So the title of the book derives from this Proverbs of Hell. And the first couple sentences are, In seed time learn, in harvest teach, in winter enjoy. Drive your cart and your plow over the bones of the dead. The road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I have to say I am certainly no, I mean, I don't think I've ever read a full Blake poem until I read this one when Sue posted it. There are snippets throughout the book of Blake. Right. And big snippets of translation too, because mm-hmm. uh, her friend is a former student of hers, I think. Yeah. Who's He's an adult and mm-hmm. he's translating Blake right. into Polish. And so there's a scene or where there are two or three different possible translations of a passage which is really interesting Mm -hmm. so it's really multi-layered you know you're reading this book that's in translation about characters who are doing translation and then seeing multiple translations which then makes you think about the translated book you're reading and how was it translated and what is what are how would a polish person who's a native thinker read it versus you know somebody who's in the u.s and our buddy marta if you're out there listening read it in the Polish. So I'm not in the Polish, in Polish. (laughs) And it's interesting because Linda on Goodreads asked, did the original Polish version refer to the Paul Newman lookalike or did it refer to someone known by many in Poland instead? Which is a good question. And the sentence she's referring to is, the handsome young man who looked a bit like Paul Newman had fetched a wad of papers out of a drawer and was now looking for a pen. And this is in the police station. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like to think that Paul Newman was so famous that he was probably known the world over as a famous actor. But right. yeah, what do he I was know? international superstar. But yeah. yeah, that is a great question. Yeah. So Marta, yeah. if you're listening, you can let us know. That'd be great. Yeah, look yeah. it up and, and please let us know. Yeah. You know, this is funny. Um, I just have a note here about the word 
ultra crepidarianism. <laughs> this is again from a different book I read, but uh, it's if you don't know what that word means, it's the habit of giving opinions and advice on matters outside of one's knowledge or competence. I never do that, especially with my children. Ultra crepidarianism. <laughs> we don't do it on this podcast no. either. Um, but, you know, it does. It's just this. I love it when books cross over like that, because that word, too, made me think about how Janina uses knowledge from that uh, entomologist mm-hmm. who, who visits and who she ends up dragging and and then how she kills somebody using naturalistic means that were horrifying yeah it's a it's a it's dark like you said there's anger and darkness there yeah and another point too you know talking about um these four areas that you know most humans that are important to them and the issue of meaning i just wanted to read this one section about usefulness Mm. Because I think that's the thing in our culture, certainly older people are considered useless and she is approaching that and she feels that, you know, she is starting to feel it in some ways, especially when she's told she's no longer needed mm-hmm. um, to help educate the children in English and stuff. Um, so here, here is this uh, paragraph. But why should we have to be useful and for what reason? Who divided the world into useless and useful? And by what right? Does a thistle have no right to life? Or a mouse that eats the grain in a warehouse? What about bees and drones, weeds and roses? Whose intellect can have had the audacity to judge who is better and who worse? A large tree, crooked and full of holes, survives for centuries without being cut down because nothing could possibly be made out of it. This example should raise the spirits of people like us. Everyone knows the profit to be reaped from the useful, but nobody knows the benefit to be gained from the useless. Mm. I love that line. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, hands down, I think the writing in this book is fantastic. And so I also have to say in tandem, the translator did a fantastic job. There, I have so many lines I'd love to read all of you I don't know how long we want this conversation to go on but I'm so glad we chose the book one of the things I do want to alert people to is that one of the people that hopped on uh, Goodreads Darcy said that she had watched the movie and I my jaw dropped I had no idea the movie is pronounced Pocut I don't know if I'm saying that right P-O-K-O-T it is subtitles. Chris and I haven't had the chance to watch it yet, but we're going to. And so she said she saw the film first, which was called, um, which is called Spore. But I guess the Polish title is Pokit. So okay. Spore is S-P-O-O-R. So I can't wait to watch the film. And I just wanted to make sure everybody knew about that. Yeah. I also want to, if you would just indulge me, I wanted to read two more things. Absolutely. Something she wrote about the future. The fact that we don't know what's going to happen in the future is a terrible mistake in the programming of the world. It should be fixed at the first opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) Amen, sister. (laughs) And then, um, and I, I also just felt like this, it was so, felt so current day, both these last quotes. Newspapers rely on keeping us in a constant state of anxiety, on diverting our emotions away from the things that really matter to us. Yeah. Very important to remember as we're reading the headlines these days. Absolutely. 
Yeah. So yeah, I'm really happy we read this one. Yeah. And um, we hope that you listeners out there have enjoyed it. Or if you listen to this conversation and decide you're going to read it, we really encourage you to do so. It's really different. It's different than anything I've read before, I feel like. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so many good lines and so much to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I definitely recommend you read it with a pencil in hand or sticky notes or something. Cause... Yeah. What I've gotten in the habit of actually is there are these big post-its that I think they're about three by five and they have lines on them. And I just have gotten into the habit of I pull three of them off or so and just stick them in the front of a book. And then I just write things down as I'm reading. And it really helps me remember things. But yeah. also, then I'll just put a page number and something about it. And ex- lots of exclamation points. And, <laughs> and then hopefully I can read my writing. Right. <laughs> That's always the, the hard part. Right. One's exactly. on writing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So thanks to everybody who, you know, left comments and had conversation online with us about this. It, it was a really uh, great choice I thought yeah very thought-provoking thanks for all your contributions and thank you Chris for reading along with me absolutely all right everybody happy Happy reading reading. okay we lied we're back um (laughs) (laughs) we were putting away our equipment and we are still talking about the book and so we wanted to just share a little bit of what we were just talking about um in that profile of Olga that I read that was written by Ruth Franklin she does talk about how Olga is a vegetarian. She is very much an animal rights person. And, you know, Olga said that she has a hard time sleeping at night because she thinks about the pain and the suffering that farm animals and factory animals are experiencing. And then also, um, she does have a home in the area where the novel is set, where she went to live full time after her divorce. She lived there with her two dogs who disappeared. Hmm. And when she was trying to find her dogs, some of the locals told her that hunters do sometimes shoot dogs. So in a lot of ways, this is an autobiographical story, right? When it comes to the animals. And so, Emily, you were talking a little bit about your book group's reaction. Right. I mean, I had posed a question to my book group when we had our discussion about how I, and I I don't want to offend anybody with this statement, but how for some people, you know, they hold animals in higher regard almost, in my opinion, than they do the humans in their life. And I think sometimes that's because people just have an easier time relating to animals than they do to humans. And in in this book sometimes felt that way that, you know, Janina didn't have much energy or interest or space in her life for the humans, or maybe that's not even the right way to say it. She didn't have patience for them. And Chris made a really good point that, you know, the part of the difference between animals and even your children is that animals don't have a voice and can't really protect themselves or speak for themselves. Right. And there, there already is such a strong taboo in the world against harming children, although it happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is that taboo against it. But when it comes to animals, not as many people are concerned about what happens to animals. And there is this kind of hierarchy of animals as well. Like, you know, we eat pigs in this country, but we don't eat dogs, Mm -hmm. you know, and why does that happen? It seems very arbitrary sometimes. And, you know, the thing is, animals give comfort, you Mm -hmm. know, I mean, scientific studies show all the time from your mental health to your physical health, animals do help humans live 
happier or less anxious lives. Right. And they're, they're very miraculous too. I mean, they can diagnose cancer now and do, you know, they train dogs to do all sorts of things. So yeah. And, and also, you know, Chris made the point off mic and here we are again, that animals, you know, they're, they, your children grow up and can learn to speak for themselves animals can't do that they do need protection yeah and you'll be scooping their poop and feeding them for as long as they're around so there is that as well and and it does add another layer to the novel as well that janina's also in mourning Mm -hmm. over her dogs disappearing and then finding out that they were shot right and this is a big part of the novel that at the end it comes back to the beginning scene and that's kind of what sets her off on this crusade to kill people who are harming animals. And to really stop hunting in general. I mean, there's definitely a tone of lack of support for the hunting culture. Well, yeah, the whole hunting culture in certain ways, but also farming of animals. Like there's a fox farm, right? you know, where all these foxes are being trapped and raised for their fur. And, a lot of people say that's so pointless. The only creatures that need fur are the animals that are born with the fur. You know, we have all these fantastic synthetic fibers that are even better for your body than fur. So why keep this going on? Right. So we just wanted to hop back on and have that conversation because it's really, you know, key to the reading of the book. It absolutely is. And and I didn't realize that there were so many autobiographical right, elements, elements. Uh, to yeah. the novel until I read that profile by yeah. Ruth Franklin, which we'll, we'll um, put in the show notes. Yeah. All right. So this time, bye for real until we're back again. Right. Happy, Happy reading. reading. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, Join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.